Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Thanks for uh, th- thanks for downloading us here for another episode of Yolitics. It is uh, it's with the end of May. I think I, I got lost last episode and said, "Hey, can't believe it's all the way through May here." But I- I'm excited about this episode because it's something that hasn't been in the headlines. It's a headline that um, that's fascinating that that impacted all of us. But before we dive into the topic. Let's talk about what Wheeler is drinking. Uh, you know, for some reason, it was weird. When I went to the store the last time, I got on this kick, and <laughs> I didn't even realize it until after I got home that I had, like, four different beers that had kind of a, a something to do with strawberry. I don't know. It just Maybe it's the season. This is what they're pushing on you, you know? And so... You had a pickle beer last time, I did. Time, so you? there were four strawberries, a pickle, and something else. Uh, it was like you know going shopping in the produce section. Uh, so I'm having a Carbach Strawberry Fields uh, today, and it is a strawberry blonde, it says. I have that in my fridge. I can't drink oh, it now. now yeah, At now it's off podcast. limits. Yeah, you've already you've I don't already know. We'll see. If, I, if it's really, really good, you might have to have it. What are you having? Is it good? Oh, it's uh, far better than that uh, pickle beer that I had. Um, Anything's better yeah. than that. I'm having the uh, it's it's the DTX Golden Ale from uh, Deep oh, Ellum Brewing nice. Company from the People's Republic. All right, let's of hear Dallas. that. Let's so, hear you uh, pop that top. Yeah, you ready? I know you get into that whole sound thing there. The cold, refreshing mountains of Dallas. I'm telling Texas. you, you need to. I'm, I need to find the name of that because you. I, I don't think you believe me that there are YouTube channels that are totally dedicated to people making those kinds of sounds and talking in that way. And there are people who like to listen to that. So if this podcast doesn't yeah, work out for you, can always can try that. that. Speaking of that, you always okay. wonder like what makes people listen. Uh, to a podcast, and uh, you've got a guy who uh, sent us the reason. Yeah. So, you know, this is a guy who took our survey and thank you to everyone who took the survey. So last episode, um, I mentioned that someone said, why don't you try St. Arnold's beer? And I said, hey, you know what? I have a St. Arnold's in my fridge. I'm going to bring it on. I, I, uh, I cracked it open. And then this, this anonymous person who took our survey actually sent me an email and said, thanks. And his name is uh, Dustin. Um, and I said, by the way, how'd you find out about us? Because he had an out-of-state email address mm-hmm. uh, or signature on his email. And he said he was looking for something to listen to while cleaning the kitchen <laughs> one day. And on Google Podcasts, there was a recommendation for our interview with Nancy Boxer. She is a former uh, professor from Texas Women's mm-hmm. University that we had on not too long ago. And uh, Dustin said that that episode had a catchy enough title that he gave it a listen. Since then, he's enjoyed keeping up with what goes on back home. And I think Dustin is now in the uh, great state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. So they maybe have cheese beer up there. Dustin, what do you drink, man? Do you have uh, St. Arnold's? I'm sure you probably... Wisconsin has a lot of beer. Uh, In fact, I toured the... um, 
the what is it? What was the Miller? what's that? Miller it was because uh, it's Miller time. Like you heard that like a thousand times on the way through that tour. I don't know why I toured it, but I did. Um, I like yeah. You know what? Don't diss Miller like because that's that's a good easy throw. I wasn't here, dissing right? them. It doesn't have pickles. I wasn't in it. dissing them. It, and and I would have that any day before that pickle beer that I had last week. We you know we also had somebody else in our. our uh, Survey that said, you know, enough of the beer talk. Let's yeah. get to the. Let's get to today. It. We've so really we today we've on? really turned them off. So anyway, if you're you know in the kitchen cleaning up or, or whatever you're doing, thanks for listening today. Uh, today we're diving into a, a really uh, serious topic, and uh, this is research that has been done. This is a paper. It's a working paper. It hasn't been peer reviewed yet. That's important to point out. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens when it is uh, you know looked at by by peers. Uh, because it is making some startling conclusions, Jason, about the spread of COVID in the state of Texas after schools reopened all of the way last fall. And, and this is obviously a huge political issue. We, you know, in the past week or so, uh, past two weeks, we've seen the governor, Greg Abbott, he's already um, uh, gotten a challenger from the right. Because people on the right think that Abbott screwed things up and didn't handle them right during the pandemic. People on the left say he didn't do mm-hmm. enough. Uh, and, and Abbott, I, I don't want to say he's, he's politically hurt because he's the most popular uh, elected official in the state. He has a lot of money uh, in his campaign accounts, but he has clearly you know, been impacted by this. So this study really takes a close look, and this whole episode is, in fact, I'm going to take, take a close look and see what happened in schools when the governor said you can reopen. Yeah, and you know the interesting thing with this, Jason, is that this study isn't just looking at, okay, let's go into the school. How many positive cases did you have? How many deaths did you have? Uh, and even if they had, who knows if that kind of data would have been available. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but what this really looked at was what happened society-wide when schools reopened again. Uh, and they started pulling location uh, you know, data, GPS data, et cetera. And they figured out that, boy, when these schools opened up, the state of Texas opened up in a huge way. Uh, So we've got Dr. Charles J. Cortamanch. Interesting last name there, Cortamanch. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, He is an associate professor at the University of Kentucky uh, in the Department of Economics. Charles, thanks for being here. Tell us why you decided to study Texas school (laughs) openings if you're in Kentucky. That's a good question. To stay out of trouble in Kentucky, I guess. <laughs> now, the honestly, biggest reason is practical because um, with with the kind of kind of heavy lifting that that we had to do to get reopening dates for every school district, um, you're not going to be doing that in this time frame for for the whole country. So, if you're going to have to focus your efforts somewhere, you want it to be kind of the most most fruitful. So if you if you got to focus, if you're going to focus your efforts, say on one state, you want a big state, you want a state with a lot of counties because we're county to county variation, and you want a state where there were a lot of reopenings, of school reopenings because then you have something to study, right? So so Texas fit fits the bill very well in all of those ways. It almost sounds like Texas chose you uh, uh, to, to do the study here uh, when you when you really lay it out. And and if you can, just kind of go through the top line findings that you all had here. Uh, and the numbers, at least to a layperson anyway, uh, seem staggering. So what we find is really a, uh, frankly, it's a stronger connection than, than, than we would have guessed. 
Um, and, and frankly, it's not, it's not the result I wanted. I've got four school age kids myself. Uh, we, 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 the rooting interest was far more to find the opposite, uh, if I can put it that way, but, but you sort of have to follow the data where they lead you. Um, and so we found a, you know, surprisingly strong connection um, between the reopening of schools and the resulting spread of COVID-19 um, across Texas. Um, really the bottom line numbers suggest that across the state as a whole, reopening schools led to at least 43,000 additional cases and at least 800 additional fatalities within those first two months after the reopenings. And, and so the at least word just means that we're, uh, you're really estimating a range of possible possibilities and we're, you know, that's the safest claim. Like that's kind of at a minimum. This is a 75 page report. Um, (laughs) We actually, you know, went through it word by word because we have to, you know, make sure we ask you some intelligent questions here. Sounds good. But, but, but the, the uh, kind of the overriding theme here is the idea is if when the schools reopened, the spread was because parents went out as well and re- either returned to work uh, or just became more socially active. You guys even looked at GPS data showing where, you know, mobile phones were for what a million mobile phones. Um, and, and the other, you know, dynamic to this also is, is teachers uh, would be, uh, you know, obviously back at work as well, too. So the infections, I presume, I, I don't think you guys drilled down this far, but the, most of the infections were probably adults who were kind of stirred up because of the school's reopening. So it's hard to put a percentage on how much is in school spread and, and how much is, is what we're calling spillovers. But yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, we, we think it's fair to say that that both matter to, to a substantial extent and, and almost half to both matter to get to the kind of effect sizes we're talking about. Um, when you're talking about assessing the impacts of reopening schools, it you can't just look inside schools and what's happening inside schools because, you know, as a dad of four, I can speak to this uh, very clearly. Um, the whole community life changes when schools are back open. I mean, you can just look at summer vacation versus start of the fall semester, right? It's, it's the same sort of idea. Um, you, you know, parents have quite a bit more um free time or, or, or at least less time having to supervise children. So you're talking about the ability to go to, to transition from Zoom-based, heavily distracted work, right, to, to, to going back and working at a, at a work site, maybe even re-entering the labor force. Um, and then you're also talking, and, 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 you know, as my wife and I could tell you, I mean, the start going out to lunch again because you don't have three kids running around the house, right? Uh, Right. And I mean, so it's not just work, could be leisure as well. Right. And then um, there's another similar. So that, that's a story related to time use. There's a related but a little bit different story that we call the signaling effect. And this is something documented on the other end, like with that a big part of the reasons the shelter in place orders seem to do as much as they did. Because if you think about it, they were kind of toothless. Right. I mean, it's not like there were there were cops on every block giving tickets for someone being out of the house. Right. It's but 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 there's plenty of evidence they really did affect behaviors. Um, And you just have to drive. I mean, you can just drive on a few interstates to see that, I think, over the last year. And a big part of the story that that economists kind of feel that explained that back a year ago now is is the signaling aspect, this idea that when you go as far as a shelter in place order, 
that's conveying information about the severity of the situation to people who are not going to be informed enough on the medical research to, to kind of have their own, right? So, there, so you rely on these sort of signals. And so policy can have the signaling value. And we feel like the reverse can be true as well. As you start to reopen and reopening schools in particular, we're very often kind of the last step toward, toward you know, the restaurants were usually already open, you know, other things. This is sort of that last step that really communicates, I think, to the community, unless the messaging contradicts this, that COVID's over now, you can go back to life as normal. So we see substantial increases in number of trips to work. Um, and then at the same time, though, you see um, that you, you see increases in just minutes spent outside the home that can't only be explained by work. So there's leisure involved, too. And then you see the effects being stronger in places with a lot of kids and in, in census block groups with a lot of kids. Right. Which is sort of consistent with the time use story. Parents have free time again, et cetera. But the effects aren't limited to those places. So when you zoom in on neighborhoods with the most seniors, for instance, you still see some increase in mobility. And that hmm. seems and, and it, the timing lines up exactly with when schools were open. So that to us is consistent with this broader signaling. It's safe now type of story. Yeah, because with the schools opening, you know, life very much started returning to quote unquote normal that, uh, in Texas. That was our observation, you know, here as well. You really, I mean, you can see it. You can even see it on the roads and, and we don't have, uh, we don't have Texas interstates, but, uh, but we've got, you know, a few big state roads in Lexington and all of a sudden it's like, oh boy, this is 2019 again out here. You, you wrote in the report uh, that reopening decisions appear to have been driven much more heavily by politics yeah than public health considerations and even noted that in places where the trump vote uh the trump vote share increased schools reopened sooner so the question is well why are schools reopening and is the are the is the nature of the factors driving them to reopen such that we should worry about our methods so the the step we take to try to figure that out is simple we're just you know, we take a half dozen or so county level characteristics that we would expect could influence reopening decisions. Um, we're using 2016 Trump vote share as, as kind of this political proxy. We also have um, the, the caseloads in the month prior to these decisions being made. We also have race, ethnicity, um, education level and population because we, you know, certainly uh, just anecdotally, there's more evidence that the bigger areas open later. So is it, so the question is with some of these things, is it population per se, is it COVID caseload per se, or are those things just kind of standing in for, for politics in, in say urban versus rural areas? So we, it's a horse race. We just, uh, to, for, for a Kentucky Derby reference there, it's a, we, we take these half dozen or so factors you'd think might drive reopening decisions, throw them in a horse race. And when you put them all together, which ones win? And it was really very striking. I mean, our guess would have been, it'd be some of all of these, but when you put them all in there together in the horse race, it's politics that, politics is the only horse that even finishes the race, basically, in that matter. You're telling us, man, what are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> we, we live it down here. But speaking of politics, uh, Charles, what, uh, what kind of reaction have you had to this report? I, I realize it just came out, but have you heard from uh, anyone down here in Texas besides us? 
as of now, yeah, I mean, we've had um, we've had pushback certainly, um, and you know, you sort of you do this enough, um, you learn, you, you realize when you let the data kind of talk as best you know how that almost inevitably, um, whatever the topic is, you're going to make half the people mad and half of them happy and. And uh, this is one that might be more than half mad, but uh, I don't want to get more grenades uh, thrown your way. That's what I'm here for. But, but uh, there is a but. Uh, But you know, this report. I mean, it comes. It it doesn't come in a vacuum. I mean, the the pandemic is still going on right now, and yet we're already hearing about districts here in Texas that are saying, "Hey, don't worry about putting masks on your school supplies list uh, for the fall because we're going to make that optional." Um, and, and of course, we have the whole specter of vaccinations. Will districts sure. require vaccinations for kids who are returning? Might a report like this be instructive to a lot of these districts? Might they rely on the information that they're seeing here? Should they rely on the information that they're seeing here uh, to make some determinations with, with things like that? Here's the best way I think I can put it. The CDC has their body of evidence, um, which is a little limited, but it's not nothing, right? Um, that basically says schools can be reopened safely if and so i think the number one thing our study is trying to communicate to to decision makers is pay attention to what's after the if and number one on that list is that community spread is in check and so if you're talking about we don't need masks you know and, and all of that well what's community spread look like in that area that's number one because kids themselves are probably not now if 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 there was a 100 you know percent vaccination including kids right i would say you throw our paper out it's be you know i'd, I'd go that far but we're not going to be there especially with kids by the fall and we're already seeing a lot of areas you know across the country where that the vaccination rates plateauing Right. And, and so it's now a demand issue, not a supply issue. And so I think the number one thing I'd say is community spread should be in check. And there's debate about what in check means exactly, but it's not Texas levels in tw- fall 2020. That much is agreed on. Um, so I would actually kind of turn this around and say, well, how do you how's, how do you get community spread in check to the point where you shouldn't really be concerned all about schools, vaccinations. So I would actually take this and say, this is not a story about closed schools. It's a story about get your community's vaccination rate up to the point where you can say spread is going to be going down. And now we, you know, we don't need to get a zero to start saying, throw the masks away, but, but we, you know, we need to get it lower than it is in a lot of places. So I would turn that around that way, that it's almost less in some ways about what your school mitigation strategy is and more about what's your community doing to keep those rates low, you know, and, and, and that would be number one. And number two would be, you know, there's other stuff in the if with CDC that um, the masks, for instance, the distancing, which is now down to three feet. Charles, I have two last questions yep. for you. Let me ask you about the numbers here a little more. Mm-hmm. The, the report uh, said that school reopenings in Texas led to at least 43 additional, uh, 43,000 additional COVID-19 cases and uh, 800 additional fatalities within the first two months of schools reopening. So let me go a step further. If schools did not reopen, would uh, roughly 800 people still be alive today in Texas? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it says. Um, um, during that same time frame, there were under just a bit under 5,000 total COVID-19 fatalities in Texas. So, you know, when you're talking about 800, is that big or little? And that's, remember, a lower bound. Um, you know, that that's a pretty good, you're talking about 20%. I mean, uh, of, of the total, I mean, that seems like a fairly big number, but the cost of keeping schools closed is borne by kids, learning losses, social socialization, et cetera, and relatively youngish adults. To get to this number of deaths, you're basically talking about, you know, one way or another from school reopenings, whether it's directly from in-school spread gets to the grandparents eventually, or, or whether it's um, that these the spillovers affect people's behaviors more directly. One way or another, the fact that we're documenting 800 plus deaths is saying that school reopenings are leading to spread that one way or another gets to the more vulnerable segments of society. Uh, last question uh, I have here for you too. Uh, you spent a lot of time on this study. I know you just didn't do it for, for us here on the podcast. Uh, we, we appreciate the, uh, the intelligence here, though. Um, but, but what do you hope happens to this? What, what, do you hope uh, you know, folks at the state capitol see this, people in the school districts here in Texas see this? Or obviously it has an audience nationwide as well, um, and no one's hoping for another pandemic. But, but where, where do you hope this lands? How do we want it to matter in a couple of punchlines? Number one, just we, we want we, we want to kind of the, the, the conversation really coming from the CDC has sort of gone in the direction of school reopenings are safe, school reopenings are safe, school reopenings are safe. We just want to provide that other side of the coin that and the specific stuff the CDC is saying we don't think is wrong. It's just that there's ifs there. It's safe if and, and we have to pay attention to keeping spread low and pay attention to those mitigation guidelines the CDC says. And don't throw those out just yet. Charles, th- thanks for the insight on this. The study is fascinating. We'll post a link to it uh, in the description of the podcast here. But we appreciate your uh, your time and, and laying it out for us. Absolutely. Hopefully there's a, there's a few good things you can use out of that anyway. But Ho- Hopefully uh, you won't get any, uh, you know negative uh, emails or uh, bad Twitter uh, posts. Well, when, but, when we, do, we can't we'll, guarantee that, man. When we do, we'll have to see, you know, we can see, click on them, and it's like, they also follow Yolitics. And it's like, oh, well, there, there you go. You'll know who to blame. <laughs> That's the reason. I'm yelling at you. <laughs> Thanks, man. We'll see you. All right. appreciate Charles, it. Charles, thank you. All right, so we kid uh, a little bit there about you know his social media feeds and you know how he may not want to look at those for a few days. It's interesting though, Jason, because we reached out to the state to go, hey, what about this report? Did you all read it? Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, they've read it, uh, and and you can believe that they're they're not liking it very much. Uh, basically, the state says you know we strongly stand by our commitment to offer in person instruction, and we also gave the option of allowing parents to keep their kids home virtually so that they wouldn't have to go into the school. But an interesting thing is they pushed us to social media and they said, hey, have you seen this critic of Dr. Cordomanche's work there at the University of Kentucky on this? Uh, This critic, you should read what they have to say. So we opened it up uh, and it was from Forbes. It was an epidemiologist who basically said, uh, you know, uh, what I'm seeing here is it's hard to measure, you know, the way that they've done this because school reopenings are often entangled 
with broader business reopenings. So it's really hard to sort of tease out, was this in fact because schools reopened or was this because, you know, more of the economy in Texas was reopening at the time and, you know, that led to more activity and more spread of COVID. So this epidemiologist basically saying, I don't think that you can definitively say it was because of the schools. And then there's Emily Oster, who is a very uh, well-known economics professor at Brown University, who's kind of saying, the same thing there and she's also noting looking at the the, the graphs in this very study uh, that mm-hmm. Dr. Cortemanch was part of saying that you can see a little bit of a trend of, of cases and deaths going up even in the weeks before schools reopen so she too is saying I, I don't think that you can just assign it to the schools but but if the schools didn't reopen would the would the businesses, have reopened. That is the that's the I question, and that's what he's talking about. Yeah. Is that boy? You could see it as soon as those schools were back in business again. Man, people were moving around like mad, and there was sort of this hmm. signaling to the public that hey, things are normal again, or they're getting back to normal. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a, a researcher in, in that aspect, but you know, take the shots you want at, at this study. But at the end of the day, we do know the you know the things happened at schools because of the reopening we we had early on in the pandemic remember we talked to the teachers down mm-hmm. in austin uh, i think we talked to two teachers down there in austin isd who had pre-existing conditions who were scared to death to go back to the classroom because they were more susceptible to the virus uh, but one of our colleagues at uh, wfaa teresa woodard is a reporter there um, and and she started looking into this for s- several months ago she was trying to find out the actual direct impact uh, on faculty, staff, teachers, custodians, cafeteria workers, school bus drivers, were they more susceptible? Did you know how were they impacted by this? Um, these cases of COVID on campus. Why is it that we can't seem to get our arms around concrete statistics in Texas on this? Well, the short answer is because nobody's tracking it. And that was a bit of a surprise. Um, So back in February is when we started sort of peeling back the layers for this because there seemed to be day after day after day reports of teachers from the North Texas region that were coming into our newsroom who had passed away from COVID. And so in one editorial meeting, which if you're not in news, you may not realize, but we have a lot of meetings, a lot of daily meetings. And in one particular editorial meeting, somebody asked the question, hey, how many, how many deaths is this now? And nobody could quite answer it. And so somebody said, why don't we call the state and find out? Well, we called the state and there was no answer because the Texas Education Agency told us we're not tracking that. The Department of State Health Services told us we're not tracking that. And the reason the state gave us, the state health services gave us that is because um, on uh, the the death reports that come in from um, medical examiners, maybe somebody's occupation is listed, but you don't know if they're retired, if they once had that occupation. So it was really difficult for them to track. So once we discovered that no one at the state level was doing it, we were going to. So yeah, no tracking, Teresa. So what did you do? Because this seems like a, a massive undertaking. Yeah, it, well, it was. Um, we used Google, to be quite honest. Um, Google was our was our best friend for this project, and we um, sadly started just sort of searching for mainly news reports from across the state. But then once we would, you know, look at some news reports, of course we weren't going to take that as the, the final word, so we would also search for obituaries. We also searched for GoFundMe accounts for families that had, that had um, 
created some accounts to maybe help pay for funeral expenses and of course social media so it was it was just a daily tracking process and the hardest part for me was watching the numbers grow and we started in early february we found about 50 and here we are hmm. and we're up to well over 80 and i know eight, that eight, and that's that's 80 teachers that have died we counted teachers we counted counselors we counted principals hmm. cafeteria workers custodians hmm. bus drivers coaches because in our minds all of those people impact a student's life on a daily basis. I know some people are going to hear that number and say, well, 80 is not that much. Let, let me counter that thought. Number one, for anyone who's lost a loved one to this virus, one is painful. So when you take it and multiply it by 80, it's really hard. Number two, we know that count is low. We yeah. absolutely know that count is low mm -hmm. because... The only count we have is based on deaths that were publicized. So you know how it is. There's, there's plenty of families out there who don't want their death publicized. Or there's plenty of families who can't afford to place an obituary somewhere. And there's, there's, there's not going, not every single death is going to be publicized somewhere on the internet. So we know it's low, extremely low. And so it's hard... So as hard as you've worked there, Teresa, we know that we're missing probably uh, a lot of these cases yeah. where uh, educators have passed away because of COVID. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting that you talk about, you know, how even one, the loss of one yeah. is extraordinary uh, when you put it in the context of their family. Teachers, as we know, educators have a much larger family. Yes. So that loss of one is then multiplied many yeah, times Jason, over. I'm so glad you said that because... This is what really got me with this project is thinking about the fact. So on a daily basis, you know, a teacher or a coach or a cafeteria worker or a custodian can interact with dozens upon dozens of students. So you think about the loss of more than 80 lives. This is this is the potent, the potential to reach thousands of students is now gone all across our state. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that it is accurate when I say Thousands of students are mourning the loss of someone who was in their school world on a daily basis. And it's extremely sad. And these are the people who are shaping the lives of our young people. They're our future. And now they're gone. And it's terribly sad. And Teresa, the story you have put together for WFAA, you focus in on Lancaster High School, which is in southern Dallas County, and two English teachers there. Tell us about these two teachers. You know, so Ivana Stewart was a young woman who was born in Lancaster. Lancaster's outside of Dallas. It's, it's not a high-income area. Um, uh, Ivana Stewart was sort of a success story. She grew up there. She went to high school at Lancaster. She graduated from the University of Texas at Arlington and came back to Lancaster High School to teach English. And uh, so she was, you know, a success story. She was a product of Lancaster and now teaching back in Lancaster. And she worked in a classroom that was just a couple doors down from the classroom where she studied English under a wonderful woman named Rafietta London, who's the head of the English department there. Well, um, Ivana lived at home with her mother and her grandmother. She was taking care of them. She was, by all accounts, taking COVID extremely seriously, being very careful. But somehow, Ivana caught COVID. Ivana was teaching. Then she, of course, was out for a few days. She ended up in the hospital. Ivana Stewart 
died the day before her 27th birthday. Mm. And you have, uh, actually, you brought some of the, the sound bites from, from yeah. your story for WFAA. T- tell us who we're about to hear uh, so discuss this. Yeah, you're about to hear from Rafietta London. And I'll tell you, from my perspective, when I talked to Rafietta, um, I, I just, she moved me to tears um, because she was so raw and so honest about just how difficult this experience was. So um, take a listen. Here's what Rafietta said about the struggle for students to deal with death, but also particularly in Lancaster because it's a low-income area and and teachers like Ivana were really, um, they were on their student's side. Death is not easy for us. Then you think about kids and we know that kids are resilient. Yes, they are. But when you lose somebody that is in your corner, that has your back and that's not gonna let you fail, that was Ivana, then it's like, okay, what am I going to do? I done lost her. You know, who's got my back now? You know, sometimes the kids come to school and they're lost. They don't feel like nobody got their back. Then they pop up in your classroom and you show them that love and you have their back and then you're gone. Then who's going to fight for me? I don't have nobody to fight for me no more. She left, so that 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 was a that was hard for some of them. And that was Rafaela London, who's the uh, head of the English department there at Lancaster High School. Absolutely, and, yeah. And just to you know, she re- she reiterates a point that Jason and, and you both made about the impact of this and how uh, you know Miss Stewart there was. You know, had their back. Not only was she a teacher, but she had their back as well, too. But you brought another comment, Teresa, too. I want you to set this up and explain it to our listeners here, too. Miss um, London talks about how teachers and faculty and staff across the state have been treated during the pandemic. And I, I've kind of heard this from other people, but the, the, the soundbite you captured and you brought really kind of encapsulates that. Uh, t- tell us about this, Teresa. Yeah, one of the things we were talking about with Miss London was... Uh, teachers did not become eligible for the vaccine, for the COVID vaccine in Texas, until the federal government said, now you have to make teachers eligible. Um, Based on some reporting from Education Week, which is an education-specific news outlet, uh, 25 other states made teachers eligible for the COVID vaccine before they became eligible in the state of Texas. So that was part of our conversation. So I, I asked Miss London how she felt about that. And um, she she paused for a second and she said, I don't want to get ugly. I don't want to get political. And then she did a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but she really, she really was candid about how she felt like teachers were treated. Take a listen. Well, you got 50,000 people in the building and we all in the hallway walking. Mind you, kids are not Children, they're not like us. They're not going to think about, okay, let me get six feet away from this person because you don't know what they got six feet here. They're children, and they, from the littlest to the oldest, they're children. But I don't think people took that into consideration. And then now you want to push people back in the classroom. You don't know how many of us died. You don't know how many of us are sick. You don't know how many of us have underlying conditions that can catch COVID. Ivana had asthma. Ivana was diabetic. I, I don't want to get ugly, personal, but um, people who make decisions need to think about the decision and choices they're making for us. 
if um, God knows if this <laughs> would have been handled properly in the beginning, I think that we wouldn't have lost, we, we wouldn't have not lost so many people. She really got emotional there, Teresa. Mm. She did, and I got emotional alongside her uh, when I was talking to her. Um, you could just see the pain. And, you know, that's the thing, as I said earlier, I know there's going to be people who say, hmm, 80's not that many in, in a state this size. Mm. Listen to that pain. Listen to that pain and tell, tell Rafaeta that 80's not that many. I mean, she lost it- a colleague. She lost someone. So, so Rafaeta had taught Ivana Stewart English back in, you know, not, not too long ago. And then she watched her come back and, and then taught beside her. Ivana was a teacher whose, her, her test grades were going up. She was teaching honors English. Uh, by all accounts, the kids were getting excited about coming into her classroom and felt like they could connect with someone and felt like, as we said, somebody had their back. And so, yeah, Rafaeta London feels pretty angry about Ivana's death. I would imagine there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of pain. And then there's also a lot of fear, too, though, Teresa, because these are your colleagues who are passing away from a virus that is easy to transmit. And you think, wow, if that happened to someone two doors down from me here in my workplace, that could be me next. Where did they get it? How did they get it? Is someone walking around here with it? I would imagine there's probably been a lot of fear. Yeah, most definitely. In fact, Rafaela London had COVID as well. She recovered from it. Uh, she had it a couple of months before Ivana got it. Um, but she she said she was, it was, it was I, I just don't know that there's words to describe the school year that is coming to a close across Texas right now. Um, Fear, anger, um, so much confusion, so many questions, and just so many teachers who spent day after day worried in their classroom. Mm -hmm. Teresa, what kind of reaction do you think uh, lawmakers are going to have from this? Obviously, the the, uh, public health people will have, you know, hey, we we warned you guys, this is serious stuff, but, but lawmakers seem to be wanting to shut the door on this and, hey, that's beyond us now, it's past, let's move on and reopen this great state. What, what do you expect that we'll hear? That's a good question, Jason. You know, um, we have put in an open records request to get emails from the state, from the health department, and also from the governor's office, because I want to see what the discussions were when it came to making teachers eligible for the vaccine here in Texas. You know, who was who was advocating for it? Who was saying, no, we don't need to go there yet? You know, what, what were the discussions like? And um, no surprise, you know, we're hitting some roadblocks with getting those emails to us in an open records request. And so I'm hopeful that maybe we can at least make somebody think twice about, you know, did we do the right thing? I, 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 do, I do think in time, maybe it's not right now, but in time, it is a legitimate thing to go back and sort of, you know, grade your performance on how, how, what you did during this pandemic. And I think it's a very legitimate question to ask when it came to rolling out the vaccines, did we do it the right way? Teachers, in my opinion, are frontline workers. And so are grocery store clerks. And, you know, these are people who were not put high on the priority list or weren't put on the priority list at all in the state of Texas. And I just think it's a legitimate question to ask. Will lawmakers well, ask? I, th- I don't know. 
I think it's legit, legitimate, especially when you say, you know, grading your performance. I mean, we put the kids through that. We grade their performance, whether it's a, you know, an, a strange year like this or a normal year. And, yeah, I do think that as, you know, officials, uh, they should be grading their performance as well because we don't know when we're going to see the next pandemic you come along. Um, I, I, I do want to say that, you know, maybe would it have informed their decisions better on whether this particular subset of the population should be vaccinated among the first if maybe they had data about that subset but if you're not even collecting necessarily the data on how many teachers how many you know are you know dying from this disease how do you how do you know that if you're not collecting the data i did think it was interesting we reached out to the texas education agency about this And one of the things that they said was out of 3.8 million students and teachers and staff learning and working on Texas public school campuses this year, just more than 5% reported a test-confirmed case of COVID-19. They got very specific there, test-confirmed case, and there is no mention uh, of deaths in that uh, either. Uh, That does seem low when you see something like that. And if you only read that, it can seem like, well, wow, that went well. And uh, yeah, you know? it's it's always the case until you stop and think about the people behind the numbers. Um, you you can you can easily gloss over things, but when you start talking to people like Rafaela London, and and I've, I talk to other family members, uh, I talk to have two brothers in in the in Grand Prairie, another suburb of Dallas, who lost their mother and father. At the same time, they were teachers in Grand Prairie ISD. They got COVID at the same time. They got hospitalized at the same time. And they passed away within moments of each other in a hospital at the same time, holding hands. And I talked Mm. to their sons about that loss. And I talked to a woman who is the wife of a band director from Katy outside of Houston. And and she lost her husband after a battle with COVID uh, when he had specifically said he didn't want to go back into the classroom until he got a vaccine. That wasn't allowed to happen. So when you start to learn the stories and talk to the people, numbers don't matter as much as those personal stories. Yeah, when, when you really peel that away, and you do an excellent job at that. But again, Jason and Teresa, we have a news reporter here doing what a governmental agency or entity should have been doing since the get-go on this, and that is tracking this stuff so you can go back and see. Because unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be the last pandemic we have. Uh, and who knows when this will officially end with the variants that are popping up out there. But Teresa, last last question I have for you is just what kind of conclusion do you want to leave listeners with and, and your viewers at WFAA? I just want people to stop and think uh, because the numbers do sound like, eh, well, you know, we made it through that and, and we put it behind us. Well, there are thousands of students who didn't just put it behind them. There are thousands of students who walked into school this morning and somebody wasn't there because of COVID. There are thousands of families, hundreds of thousands of families clearly across the country who are grieving. And I guess I may sound a little salty here, but I've had a a struggle uh, posting on on Twitter. You know, when, when you post a number about deaths or you post a number about cases or something like that, the, the people who respond to you and say, well, put it in context and talk about how many people didn't catch COVID or how many people recovered from COVID. And I understand those are, those are important numbers, but I can't get past the fact that when we talk about one death, we are talking about dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are grieving. And, and people need to remember that. 
It is a powerful story told by one of my very favorite reporters, and I don't just say that because she's but a, one a of your friend. favorite. She is my favorite. What do you mean you she's guys, one of your favorite? Come on, too dude. much. Well, you're well, only you're saying that other, because I'm you're sitting my other here. Jason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we told Alex Rozier that the other day. I'm but, sure uh, no, you seriously. did. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. You may have, but I didn't. <laughs> I appreciated it. Uh, it was good to be on you guys with with you on Yolitics. I was thinking about this. I've been on one prior time, and I think it was before right. COVID. And so um, it was. We were all sitting at a yeah. table together. Remember yeah, those days, uh, <laughs> Teresa? I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan uh, of yours. So I, I, I'm glad you did this story. I'm glad you did something that uh, w- w- would shine a light on this. So good work as always, Thank you. and, and Thank I can't you. I can't wait to see it. Our teachers need the the light shined on them every day. They have worked their tails off. Um, they always do, but particularly this year. You know, I, I I think she is a fantastic reporter, and and boy, did she have her work cut out for her with this one because you're trying to you're you're, yeah. you're trying to get a handle on something that there's just not a handle for, and and you you know have to start very broadly. And she says she found these cases in poor districts, she found them in rich districts, she found them all over the state, and again. She's just using Google there, so she's skimming the surface. We don't know how many we may have missed out there, but uh, a valiant effort uh, there by Teresa Woodard uh, and a phenomenal job uh, reporting on something that needs to be talked about more. And, and you know, these, these teachers, salute to all of them, uh, all the educators, people right. who've come into contact with our kids over this last year. And I know all of those educators uh, get into what they're doing. They're very passionate about what they do. But I also know that they are counting down the days. They are almost to summer. And, uh, boy, what a reprieve they need. Yeah, they, they totally do. And, and Teresa sent us a note after the interview there and, and uh, told us that, you know, it, it's like you said, it's all over the state. Corpus Christi, El Paso, you know, some of the lower income districts. And you have places like Frisco, uh, Carroll, uh, South Lake Carroll, um, which is in, uh, in Tarrant County also, uh, you know, high end district up there, too. It, it, it didn't discriminate. The virus did not discriminate and people were impacted on every campus in some form or fashion. So, you know, shout out to her, salute to her, tip of the Stetson to her for for taking the time to look into this because uh, no government entity would. A tip of the Stetson, you say? The, yeah, it's an old Dan yeah. Rather thing, a tip of the Stetson. Says, yeah. I, I don't have yeah, a cowboy fact, hat. I have an L.A. Dodgers hat. L.A. Dodgers hat in, in Texas. I know. Uh, Wow. It was uh, it was a souvenir, man. Okay. It was a souvenir. Again, you're judging me. You, you, well, you judge. I've, I've seen what I've, I've seen what it looks like when you pick it up, and so we're we, we have every uh, you know desire for you to keep that thing on. Be thankful yeah, for the hat. Keep it on. Be thankful please. for the hat. Exactly. Uh, everybody, thanks as always for uh, taking the time to listen. Hope that you got something out of this one. Uh, anytime you can uh, leave us a comment, let us know what you think, or send us some uh, uh, some ideas our way. Uh, here in Texas, what's going on. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, we will see you again next week.